Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 24, the SAEM edition. The SAEM edition? Yeah, I figured since we're recording from SAEM, this could be the SAEM edition. I mean, I guess so, but the content is still the same. High quality, rapid board review. Let's start out with some nephrology this week. Jeff, do all children with nephrotic syndrome require admission? In a child with mild to moderate edema, a normal blood pressure, and no respiratory symptoms, discharge home with corticosteroids may be appropriate. And what's Winter's formula, and what's that used for? Winter's formula is used to determine if there's an appropriate respiratory compensation in a metabolic acidosis. The actual formula is the PCO2 equals 1.5 times the bicarb, plus 8, plus or minus 2. Let's stick with acid-based theme. What are the common causes for a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis? You can remember the causes of a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis with the mnemonic HARDAS, hyperalimentation, Addison's disease, RTA, diarrhea, acetazolamide, spironolactone, and saline infusion. Great start. Why don't you load up the first question? A 17-year-old G1P0 at 25 weeks gestation presents with intermittent blurred vision. On presentation, she is asymptomatic. Her vitals are a heart rate of 84, a blood pressure of 175 over 113, with an O2 sat of 97%. Her physical exam reveals 2-plus pitting edema on both her lower extremities and a UA that has 3-plus protein on dip. Which of the following is likely indicated? Is it A, admit for further obstetrics evaluation, B, anti-epileptic medications, C, arrange follow-up with the patient's obstetrician, or D, emergency C-section? Profound hypertension, blurry vision, and proteinuria? This sounds a lot like severe preeclampsia, so the answer here would be choice A. Admit for further obstetric evaluation. That's right. Preeclampsia is defined as gestational hypertension with a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or above with proteinuria, either 300 milligrams over 24 hours, or a protein to creatinine ratio of 0.3, or a dipstick with 1 plus protein after 20 weeks gestation. And don't forget that ACOG just changed their guidelines. And now proteinuria is not required to make the diagnosis of preeclampsia. Hypertension with any signs of end organ damage is sufficient for the diagnosis. Great point. And preeclampsia becomes severe preeclampsia with a blood pressure over 160 systolic or 110 diastolic with any of the following. Thrombocytopenia defined as less than 100,000 platelets. Renal insufficiency defined as a serum creatinine over 1.1 or a doubling from the baseline. A doubling in baseline LFTs, pulmonary edema, or cerebral or visual symptoms. So as you mentioned, with a blood pressure of 175 over 113, in addition to the visual symptoms and proteinuria, this teen definitely has severe preeclampsia. I think it's also worth running through the other answer choices here since there are some really great teaching points. Choice B, anti-epileptic medications, that's a trick. Although epileptic patients may have seizures, there's no role for prophylactic anti-epileptics. Choice C, outpatient follow-up, that's only appropriate for patients with mild preeclampsia or isolated maternal hypertension. And lastly, choice D, C-section, although that's the curative therapy for preeclampsia, at 25 weeks, this isn't indicated. And before we move on, I have a few OB-related questions. First, some farm. What antihypertensives are used in pregnancy for blood pressure control? Both hydralazine and labetalol can be safely used in pregnancy. And what medication is used as seizure prophylaxis in eclampsia? You would give magnesium. And last one, not farm-related this time. What lab abnormalities are seen in HELP syndrome? Remember, that's H-E-L-L-P. HELP syndrome is a severe variant or complication of preeclampsia. It's characterized by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. Great job. Enough OB. Let's load up the next one. All right, you're up for this one. 
Which of the following fish poisonings is associated with a peppery taste? Is it A. Aramones, B. Cicatera, C. Scombroid, or D. Vibrio? Fish poisonings? In Orlando? I see what you're doing here. The peppery taste you're referring to is definitely seen with choice C, scombroid poisoning. That's absolutely correct. When eating a fish poisoned with scombroid, patients may note a metallic, bitter, or even peppery taste. Can you remind me of the fish that have been associated with scombroid poisoning? Sure. Tuna, mackerel, bonito, herring, anchovy, sardine, and mahi-mahi, as well as a few others all contain the heat-stable toxins. It's the histidine breakdown to histamine that leads to the funny taste. But fish with low levels of histamine may cause no change in taste and still cause symptoms. The symptoms often start abruptly with facial flushing, diarrhea, severe throbbing headache, palpitations, and abdominal cramps. God, that sounds miserable. Yeah, it can be. Treatment is mainly supportive with antihistamines. And what about the other toxins you mentioned in the question? Neither aromonas nor vibrio change the taste of the food, but they can cause an acute gastroenteritis type of picture. Cigatera poisoning is similarly tasteless, but can cause far worse symptoms. Initial symptoms there include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, myalgias, tingling and numbness, abdominal pain, and vertigo. The classic association is hot and cold sensation reversal. In the most severe of cases, cigatera poisonings can result in shortness of breath, bradycardia, hypotension, and coma. Luckily, this is exceedingly rare. Yikes, I guess I'll be sticking to eating land animals from now on. You're up next. What's the most common cause of viral pneumonia in adults? Is it A, influenza virus, B, metanumovirus, C, parainfluenza virus, or D, respiratory syncytial virus? Most common cause of viral pneumonia in adults. This has to be choice A, influenza virus. That's correct. Influenza is the most common viral cause of pneumonia in adults. In the more mild form, influenza typically manifests as fever, cough, sore throat, malaise, myalgias, fatigue, headache, conjunctivitis, and coryza. In some, it unfortunately progresses to a viral pneumonia, either primary viral or secondary bacterial. And although its utility is frequently debated, the treatment to consider here is oseltamivir. And one other clinical pearl. Don't forget that if you do admit someone with influenza, it's spread by respiratory droplets, so they must get the appropriate isolation room. Great clinical correlates. Returning to the other answer choices in this question for a second, parainfluenza virus and respiratory syncytial virus are both causes of pneumonia that are more common in the pediatric population. Metanumovirus does cause viral pneumonia in both adults and children, but it's much less common than the influenza virus. And I have one more virus-related question for you. What's the most common viral cause of rhabdomyolysis? Well, since you're asking in the influenza question, I'm going to guess influenza. You read my mind. Influenza is indeed the most common viral cause of rhabdo. Changing gears entirely for this next one, which of the following is the most common visceral artery aneurysm? Is it A, hepatic artery aneurysm, B, inferior mesenteric artery aneurysm, C, splenic artery aneurysm, or D, superior mesenteric artery aneurysm? Having seen it a few times, I'm going to go with choice C, splenic artery aneurysm. Your experience has served you well. Splenic artery aneurysms are the most common type of visceral arterial aneurysm, accounting for up to 60% of cases. They're caused by a variety of things, including arterial fiber dysplasia, portal hypertension, and increased splenic AV shunting in pregnancy. Do they require surgery for treatment, or is this in the IR wheelhouse? Most aneurysms are less than 2 centimeters in diameter, and only 2% result in life-threatening rupture. So the treatment is surgical only if the patient is symptomatic, otherwise the aneurysm should be embolized. Interestingly, or actually frighteningly, 95% of aneurysms that rupture are found in pregnant women. 
Wow, that's pretty terrible. And are there risk factors to be on the lookout for beyond pregnancy? In addition to the ones I just mentioned, there are a few others to be aware of also, such as atherosclerosis, liver transplantation, Marfan's disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Osler-Weberendu, Kawasaki disease, hereditary hemorrhagic cell injectasia, and cardiac valve infection. Let's make sure to post that list on the show notes and Twitter so that people can take some time to look it over. What about the other aneurysms listed in the question? How common are they? Not very. Hepatic artery aneurysms represent about 20% of visceral artery aneurysms. They're usually caused by atherosclerosis, infection, and abdominal trauma. Following hepatic artery aneurysms are the third most common, the SMA aneurysms. IMA aneurysms are much more rare. Speaking of rare conditions, I've got another rare one for you, a high-altitude emergency. A 14-year-old woman is brought to your mountaineering base camp at 11,000 feet for evaluation of strange behavior while attempting to summit a nearby peak with her school group. What's the most sensitive clinical sign for diagnosing high-altitude cerebral edema? Is it A, cerebellar ataxia, B, cranial nerve 6 palsy, C, ptosis, or D, seizure? The most sensitive clinical sign for the diagnosis of high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, would be choice A, cerebellar ataxia. Exactly. HACE is a clinical diagnosis, and it must be made rapidly to prevent permanent neurologic injury and even death, so the clinical signs are imperative to recognize. As you just mentioned, cerebellar ataxia, often recognized by an abnormal gait, is the most sensitive clinical sign. Other signs include encephalopathy, severe lassitude, and then a progressive decline of mental function and consciousness. And at what heights do we have to worry about this? Well, there's no hard and fast rules, but to generalize, acute mountain sickness generally begins above 2,000 meters, which is when you can expect to see the mild symptoms. Above 3,000 meters, you begin to experience the symptoms I just described. And finally, at over 4,500 meters, haste can be complicated by HAPE, or high-altitude pulmonary edema, which is a situation you really want to avoid. Sheesh. You avoid fish, I'll avoid altitude. Are there treatment options? Yeah, once you've reached the haste stage of things, your management needs to begin immediately. Descent is the definitive therapy, but it's often difficult if the patient can't walk. Dexamethasone is a rescue medication that can be offered. Additionally, supplemental oxygen and hyperbaric therapy have been shown to be useful adjuncts. If you remember anything, remember that immediate and rapid descent is the key to survival. All right, let's end with some more bread and butter emergency medicine. A 33-year-old man presents to the ED with right eye pain, tearing, and difficulty seeing out of his right eye. His visual acuity is 20-30 on the left and 2200 on the right. On physical exam, you notice a subconjunctival hemorrhage and a teardrop-shaped pupil. Which of the following physical exam findings is consistent with the suspected diagnosis? Is it A, cells and flare in the anterior chamber, B, gross retinal hemorrhage on dilated fundoscopic exam, C, intraocular pressure measurement of 52, or D, positive Seidel test on fluorescein exam? All right, so we have a subconjunctival hemorrhage and a teardrop-shaped pupil. This is definitely globe rupture, so I'm going to go with choice D, a positive Seidel test. That's right, and in case you've never seen it before, a positive Seidel test is defined as a flowing stream of fluorescein down the globe, which demonstrates extrusion of the intraocular contents. There's an awesome video up on the blog, so definitely be sure to check that out. And if your exam isn't as much of a slam dunk as seen in the video, a CT of the orbit with thin cuts may also prove the diagnosis. Great point. Globe rupture is often the result of a penetrating injury from flying shrapnel, but it can also be caused by blunt trauma. In both cases, globe rupture is a full thickness injury to the sclera. On exam, you may see subtle signs like a subconjunctival hemorrhage, darkly pigmented uvea, altered red reflex, and conjunctival laceration. 
Other more specific findings include massive conjunctival hemorrhage covering the entire globe, a teardrop-shaped pupil, as we just mentioned, or a flat anterior chamber. And from the ED perspective, management includes an eye shield, elevation of the head of the bed, updating the tetanus vaccination, and antibiotics. And of course, the Emergent Ophthalmology Consult for definitive surgical intervention. And before we get on to the rapid review, can you briefly discuss the other answer choices since opto is so high yield? Sure. Cells and flare in the anterior chamber, that would be seen in traumatic or spontaneous iritis. Retinal hemorrhage on dilated fundoscopic exam, that's classic for central retinal vein occlusion. You may recall blood and thunder from your med school days. And lastly, an intraocular pressure of 52, that would point to acute angle closure glaucoma, which we discussed in detail in episode 10. And don't hesitate to flip back to episode 10 for a much more detailed explanation of acute angle closure glaucoma. All right, let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Preeclampsia is defined as gestational hypertension after 20 weeks with a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or higher and either proteinuria or signs of end organ damage. The definitive and curative therapy for preeclampsia is delivery of the baby. Magnesium may be given for seizure prophylaxis. Both hydralazine and labetalol can be safely used in pregnancy to control blood pressure. HELP syndrome is a severe variant or a complication of preeclampsia. It's characterized by hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. Scombroid poisoning may cause a metallic, bitter, or even peppery taste. Scombroid poisoning results from the breakdown of histidine into histamine, resulting in facial flushing, diarrhea, severe throbbing headache, palpitations, and abdominal cramps. Cigatera poisoning leads to nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, myalgias, tingling and numbness, abdominal pain, and vertigo, along with a classic association of hot and cold sensation reversal. In severe cases, hypotension, bradycardia, and coma may also result. The most common cause of viral pneumonia in adults is influenza. Influenza is also the most common viral cause of rhabdomyolysis. Splenic artery aneurysms are the most common visceral artery aneurysm. Splenic artery aneurysms are managed with embolization in asymptomatic patients and operatively in those who are symptomatic. The most sensitive sign for the diagnosis of high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, is cerebellar ataxia. Other signs include encephalopathy, severe lassitude, and then a progressive decline of mental function and consciousness. HACE is managed definitively with descent. Steroids, supplemental oxygen, and hyperbarics may also be used. Globe rupture can be identified by a positive Seidel test on fluorescein stain exam. CT can also be used. Globe rupture should be managed by covering the eye with a shield, elevating the head of the bed, updating the tetanus vaccine, and starting antibiotics. Operative emergent repair is a must. All right, so that wraps up Roshcast episode number 24, the live from Orlando, but not actually really live episode. Thanks for listening. If you're listening from SAM, don't forget to stop us and give us your thoughts on Roshcast. I'll take all the positive feedback and Jeff will feel the negative ones. Wait, what?